Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. the southernmost point of Dorn to the lands of always winter. What is west of Westeros and the shadows in the east? This is Casterly Talk. I'm Ken Napsok and welcome back to the Game of Thrones rewatch. That is right. We are back on the trail. We rewatching and we watching the show that we all love so much. Of course, if you're just kind of relatively new to Casterly Talk, welcome. This is the show that discusses the world of ice and fire. So definitely means song of ice and fire. Uh, all those books. We don't do a ton of book discussion yet. Yet. Uh, we also will be discussing House of the Dragon, of course. Re- weekly uh, re- reviews and recaps and all that fun stuff here. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at Rings of Power. We're talking a little Lord of Rings around these parts coming up when uh, that show drops in September. But one of the things we were uh, doing before I ran into a little hiccup with the ownership of the podcast and where the podcast lived was this uh, rewatch where I and sometimes guests go through each episode, look at uh, the big things uh, the episode is remembered for, look back on it, talk about the good things, the controversies, and more importantly, most of all, is talk about the themes and the lessons and what the episodes are saying. What are they saying to us? What are they saying about the character's journey? Where is it taking it? Where did it come from? Uh, and uh, what uh, what can we take out of it? That's how I enjoy watching a lot of these properties, these shows. Um, so that's how we discuss it. Today we are getting into a, uh, I think it's a big episode. It's a big episode for not all the right reasons, not all good reasons, uh, but a fun episode nonetheless to look back on. We are looking at Season 4, Episode 3, Breaker of Chains. That's where we uh, left off. We had just uh, looked at The Lion and the Rose when uh, the hiccup with the podcast uh, and its ownership happened. Also, to those watching on YouTube, thank you for checking in there. Uh, I apologize. I have to use an old webcam today like I'm doing a a web blog in the early 2010 to some tech issues today. But here we are. We're having some fun. Does not matter. Uh, This is a podcast first. But uh, thank you to all of uh, you watching here on the YouTube channel. Don't forget, if you're listening uh, via the Anchor app, you can call in and leave a message about upcoming or just give me questions about upcoming episodes on the rewatch path. Or you can talk about news or just what ifs, fun things. Look forward to House of the Dragon. Look forward to Rings of Power. Let's get some Lord of the Rings questions in there. And uh, yeah, just you can do that through the Anchor app if you'd want to, if you'd like to. Uh, So let's get into the rewatch here. Original air date, April 20th, 2014. Oh boy, day after my birthday. So young, so hopeful, still in my 30s. What a time, what a time. The director of the episode was Alex Graves. The writers were Benioff and Weiss. That is key because we're going to be talking about some of the... uh, Way some uh, some things were handled. Uh, one particular scene, how it was handled. George R. R. Martin had uh, written the previous episode. Uh, at least got the official credit for it. And that would be the last episode that George R. R. Martin would write on the show. 
And uh, that kind of, it's an interesting path here, huh, Ford, from this episode. Cinematographer was Annette Halmick and editor Katie Weiland. They worked on the previous episode as well. We love just highlighting the names that uh, that helped make this show what it was and what it is. And so many people go into that process, so many people in the production process on the show. Uh, it's amazing. So always hats off to them. Looking at this episode now, the overall feel, looking back, we love talking about the reaction then, maybe the legacy now, how things can change. Always from my point of view here, this is what it is. I, I don't state facts. I just state my opinions and things from my perspectives here. This episode, I think, has risen uh, risen in the ranks. I don't love ranking episodes. I love them all. Some, but uh, pecking order, natural pecking order does emerge uh, if you watch the show enough. And, and I, I certainly have. Uh, this episode has grown for me because there's so many scenes and specifically so many lines of dialogue that I love in this episode that I'll quote, or if you know me well, misquote or paraphrase. Uh, and I kind of forget that they happen in this episode. This episode, probably most known, uh, other than the controversy, controversial scene we're going to talk about, it's probably most known for Danny on the doorstep in Marine. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the reaction then to that moment and, and maybe what it means now. Uh, but along the way, there's some great scenes with Tywin and Tommen. Uh, there is a wonderful scene that is important, especially for their story going forward with the Hound and Arya. There's a memorable uh, scene, kind of some return, return of some sex position a little bit with uh, Oberyn and Ilaria Sand. So um, a lot of those scenes emerge. Also some great heartbreaking stuff with Sam and Gilly, Tyrion and Pod. We love and will be diving into the themes and lessons of these episodes, what the this episode is saying. And there's a lot of things in this episode. I think the big theme is protection, how you offer protection, how you protect those you love, the mistakes you make while trying to protect those and what drives those mistakes. Uh, protection is big in this episode. But now, that's now, looking then... I think there was a, a kind of that middle middle of the season malaise setting in, which happens. And, and this is, uh, again, for someone who's super positive on, on all eight seasons of Game of Thrones in general. Um, no season is perfect. No episode, um, very few episodes might be considered perfect. There might be some perfect Game of Thrones episodes, but I'll leave that up for smarter pundits than me. Uh, but I enjoy the hell out of this. Enjoy the hell out of the story and the shows. And there's so much in the, each episode. But I think it's a lot of times in the middle of the season, you're, you're especially as you're watching this show as it's happening, or maybe you're through your first rewatch, you kind of know big things are coming. Sometimes you enjoy it week to week. You're relishing it week to week. You don't want it to end week to week. But sometimes you can't help but like, all right, this is a great conversation, but I wonder what this, what is this leading to? And that's especially, that's how we watch a lot of pop culture. What's next? What's, what's the plot? What's the big reveal? What's the big surprise? What's the big move? Especially with the show like Game of Thrones. Who's going to get on the throne just drives so much of it. And even though I contend the story's not really about specifically who gets on the throne, it's more about the why of the throne and the pursuit and, the, and why and how you pursue the throne and what it means for all of us. But that's a, perhaps a different overall discussion. So this episode, I think, suffers from that. Uh, in the sense of uh, there's some great, wonderful, quiet scenes. The scenes we love in Game of Thrones. But you're coming off of Joffrey's death, which we hadn't, uh, four seasons in, we hadn't had that big of a plot point, a big of story beat in the previous first three seasons. Oh, big stuff was happening, but we're still setting the table for a lot of it. 
Uh, season one, episode two, the King's Road episode is a heartbreaking one with uh, the dire wolf, uh, all that stuff with, with Ari and Joffrey. But, you know, no one dies other than Lady, but which is horrible, tragic, bittersweet. To, uh, the whole episode is as much as I love it. It's bittersweet to watch because of that ending. Uh, but you know what I mean? This is uh, season four, episode two, Joffrey dies. It's huge. It's huge. And we pick up right where that leaves uh, left off, right where, uh, you know, the, the story needs to go. And, and, and it's intense. But then the episode, I think, slows down real quick to deal with that in different ways. Um, Joffrey wasn't protected. And that is the previous episode. This is, so this episode, again, naturally deals with protection among many things. Every episode is, is, is layered, but I think that one keeps coming up. That word keeps coming up, protection. And Joffrey was not protected. So the episode has some big things at play, wonderful scenes, but it's not remembered for any of that. We'll start with what I'm t- talking about at the end of the episode. I love looking back on old reviews. Uh, if you go just to Wikipedia, you can find some, uh, you know, they always have the critical response section. Love pulling out some of the quotes from a social uh uh, you know, uh, pop culture pundits, I should say, at the time. Uh, Matt Fowler of IGN. I don't know Matt. I have some people who know Matt, uh, but I, uh, you know, trust his inside. I think he's really good at this stuff. And he he uh, is uh, had some strong thoughts at the time of the ending of this episode. Episode. Now, again, for most of you, uh, you might be, you probably, this is familiar territory. If you're just going through Game of Thrones for the first time with this podcast, which a couple of people have said they uh, they are. Uh, people who followed me over from like Force Center or some of my other stuff. Uh, hey, you know what? I'm going to go through through this with you. Watch the episode first, and then we'll dive in. Full spoilers. It's, is it weird to say full spoilers about 10 years after an episode? Yeah. But also, we want to respect those who are just kind of rolling through. Uh, the ending is in Marine. Danny has uh, gone through Astapor. She's picked up the Unsullied. She's gone to Yunkai. Uh, she has uh, uh, taken Yunkai, uh, freed Everyone in the town that she wanted to free. And now she is here at the uh, perhaps the biggest city uh, on the block there in Slaver's Bay, Marine. And she shows up with the army. And we get the, the champion. We'll, we'll go into some of the details of the scene. But this episode ends with the trebuchets coming out. We've got the canisters launched at the walls of Marine and into the city. Big explosions. And what's revealed is um, broken or... Uh, uh, you know the the slave the 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 slave the you know what I'm talking <laughs> the the slave the, the the slave neck beds. Uh, why why am I drawing blank on the name? Um, and we we have uh, got this big reveal of that, and Danny's trying to take the city in a different way, and this is big for Danny's uh, journey going forward. Danny Marine is an interesting just case study. I think on how to lead, how to learn to lead. Uh, Danny Marine and I've talked to people. I'm I'm a big Daenerys fan, big Amelia Clark fan. I, I've talked to some Game of Thrones fans, and I kind of agree. Of 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 Danny and Marine gets frustrating. You sometimes find yourself not rooting against her, but I means, but just like rooting against some of her decisions or wanting her to make different decisions. And I think uh, years back, years ahead now, looking back, I think that's part of the 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 fun for me now of Danny and Marine is watching her trying to learn. Watch. Uh, how she's treated in this world as she tries to do this just thing, free the people, free the slaves of Marine, 
and how that goes wrong for her, those around her, everything. I think it's a fascinating journey from here on out. So here she comes into town and boom, uh, it's not a dragon in flames. It's not a city taken by violence. Uh, we are going to have a different kind of um, uh, conquering happen here. Uh, the uh, slaves uh, now see that she's not their enemy. She's here to free them. I love Dan- Danny's speech in that moment. I don't speak high Valerian or low Valerian or any Valerian. I don't speak it well, but uh, uh, she talks about them being free, really hitting that word. Diary, diary, I think is the word. Again, I don't speak uh, high Valerian. Uh, such a great moment for me to collect. I love that speech. And it leads to that big reveal. Now, um, there has got to be some, uh, I, and this is going back to Matt Fowler's um, review of it here, uh, shackles. Oh, my gosh. That was the word I was looking for, the broken shackles. Thank you, Matt Fowler, looking at his review. He wrote at the time, with the direct aftermath of King Joffrey's violent demise, though it also feels like the most uh, breft of the first three episodes, and that it ended with a big, grandiose Daenerys moment, Though if one were to compare her launching canisters filled with broken shackles over the walls of Marine to last year's flambéing of Astapor and stealing off with an entire army, this moment lacked oomph. This moment lacked oomph is kind of the discussion that came out of it. It is supposed to be this big, giant, uh, uh, you know, moment, Danny getting to Marine, and it might feel a little anticlimactic for uh, anyone expecting Dragon, Flames, Dracarys, what happened in Astapor. And at the time, I think I felt that. At the time, I felt let down. But again, and we'll follow J- uh, Danny's uh, journey in Marine more closely as, as she experiences it, I think this is a giant moment. I think this is a moment of her trying to take over a city the right way. The Jakara stuff is not wrong, as we talked about. The Yunkai stuff, not wrong. It's somewhat similar. Let's go in and, and uh, we let's just not conquer it uh, by our own, our own might or with dragons. Let's go in and see who in the city can take their own city. I think it's the same approach. And it's this big, it is this big, grandiose moment from Danny. It's a clear uh, decision on how to do it. No dragon's going to fly over the wall and burn the masters here. Uh, I'm here to let the slaves of the city know I'm here for them. I'm here to free them. But here, here you can do it yourselves. Uh, we'll help you. As we know, Grey Worm's going to kind of... Uh, uh, Help them uh, come to that decision shortly. So it's great, fascinating stuff now. Uh, but then the conversation of it uh, being anticlimactic or lacking oomph, I, I kind of agreed with at the time, which is why I think this sometimes in the back of my head over the years, I'll look back at this episode and think, ah, oh, break her chains. Oh, yeah, yeah, she just launches the launches the shackles. I remember the word easier back then. Launches the shackles over, eh, okay. Not the biggest Danny moment, it's okay, but I think it's a big emotional moment. I think it's a big thematic moment for Danny now. Now, if that was the only thing this episode, uh, you know, uh, needed uh, that we needed to discuss in this episode, that'd be great. We could dive into the uh, impact of the story, our favorite scenes, favorite lines of dialogue. Because this episode has so many lines that I'll, over the years I'll quote, or if you know me well, misquote or paraphrase badly. Uh, so many wonderful scenes, but. Uh, we can't get into a discussion of this episode with not talking about the controversy around the Jamie and Cersei sex scene, which uh, I say sex scene, but uh, some might say rape scene. And you know what? They're not wrong. Uh, now, I'm here by myself discussing this. I always value other people's opinions and perspectives, but often hearing casually talk, particularly in the rewatch episodes, it's me, a man, a beanie, and a microphone in his own room. Uh, again, nothing I'm saying is cold hard fact. It's all my perspective. It's all just my thoughts looking back on this here. But 
this was the first time Game of Thrones took a big, giant hit. Had there been questions about what they were doing with the show, about the, the sex and violence of it all, uh, and how to handle that, and are they doing it the right ways? Well, yes, absolutely. But this is the first one in, in which the show that had been so popular uh, by this point started to become award-winning, was starting to, you know, 2014 at Comic-Con, 2013 at Comic-Con, I was there. Everyone who showed up from this cast or anyone who showed up from the crew were rock stars. The show was at its zenith and at its, uh, you know, highest level uh, of um, just clout in pop culture punditry. And this was the first time the show took a big, giant hit. You could not just... um, Ignore. You couldn't say, "Well, we got a lot of male gaze going on." Ah, the sex position. Hey, I don't know. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's fun to watch, but it's a little much. Uh, the violence. Uh, it's a little much. That, that had kind of been the discussion before, but I think generally people were on board. And uh, again, not talking about how they were adapting the books or the show. That's a different discussion that was was there from the first episode on. This is the first time that um, issues and social issues um, started uh, hitting the show and the discussion around the show. And again, if you just look, uh, you know, at a, at a summary of, of uh, reviews at the time, people from HitFix, Time Magazine, the Washington Post, um, Forbes, the AV Club, Hollywood Reporter, just going through uh, Wikipedia's kind of uh, summary, um, uh, whoever's uh, written these articles here on Wikipedia, uh, anyone can if you get your passwords right, uh, it's, it's a good collection of um, Magazines, Time, Slate. I mean, when the Time and Washington Post are talking about it, it's it's big. And uh, getting right to the moment here, um, it's it's a moment that is different from the books, but also it's it's similar enough to be clear. And George R. R. Martin, um, again, episode two, he writes it, and that's it. That's the last time he'll write for the show. And I think you can also track that season four is when there was a divergence. Not from the books and all that kind of stuff. I will argue that the show was diverting from the books from the beginning. It was telling its own tale from the beginning. But this was by the time George, I think, not ever having a personal one-on-one discussion with him about this. This was how you start to sense a lot of George saying, well, I didn't write it that way. Or I've taken some time off of the show to finish the books. All those kind of things. There was, seemed to be a little bit of a dividing line. Uh, in fact, some of his comments are, I was not uh, consulted on this scene, all those kind of things. Uh, and he does say um, that uh, he, you know, the dynamic is different in the books uh, than this. And uh, he said the scene, though, was al- always intended to be disturbing. Again, so George R. R. Martin saying, but I regret if it has disturbed people for the wrong reasons. The big reason for this is on the show, it's, it's not consensual. It does not start out consensual. First of all, it's already freaky enough, because let's not forget their brother and sister. I think by season four, we're used to that. It is kind of weird. Side note, put a pin in it. Uh, we can discuss it at a later date. I think by season three or four, the fact that Jamie and Cersei are brother and sister sometimes just didn't factor into a lot of our discussions about the characters, whether we're rooting for them or not. Uh, you know, it just kind of was, it was what it was. And you just kind of accepted it in this weird world. I, it, it always... It's always there, but I remember even by 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 season eight when when he returns to her, I'm kind of like, yay, wait, brother sister. Uh, it's just the, the show uh, just kind of does that, so it's already disturbing, I think enough. And then it's uh, at the 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 foot of the, the the body of their dead son. 
uh, killed, uh, murdered right in front of them. No matter what you think of Joffrey, it's it's pretty violent. It's pretty um, in your face. And if you're Cersei and Jamie, it's it's horribly traumatic. Whether or not we like them or root for them, it's horribly, horribly traumatic. And here it is in the Sept, uh, their son's body uh, in front of them. And uh, the sex scene starts and it is not consensual. It's just not consensual. No if and buts about it. It does not start that way. It is shot with some... If you're paying attention to Cersei's uh, movements and uh, position of her, her feet and legs and body, like uh, the, the, the implication is that it, 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 it turns consensual. And you just, everyone was right to have a problem with this scene, especially looking back now. Um, I offer no excuses for the show, to be clear. I just always keep going back to the discussion that Game of Thrones was conceived, created, and, and begun, not the books, the show, Game of Thrones, in this different time where even, this is not even 10 years ago, but 10 years ago, our expectations, what shows and movies were able to get away with uh, was different. Again, that's not offered up as an excuse. It just, it's con- context, I think, to the time. And I think Game of Thrones uh, over the years does suffer from being created in a different time by some well-meaning people who maybe had trouble adjusting and maybe stayed stubborn to the story or maybe uh, going jumping ahead to the season five stuff with uh, Sansa, Ramsey, and Theon didn't understand that, hey, if, even if you're, if you're going to do that plot point, how you do it and how you execute that scene, how you shoot it and whose perspective it is, uh, it matters. It matters. And if you go through the, the, the comments, and I, I'm not going to uh, read through all of them, but there's a lot of comments that you can go back to uh, the director, Alex Graves, even Benioff and Weiss, even on the DV, uh, the HBO extras or DVD extras, uh, if you watch back in the day, they talk about, about it. Nicolaj Coster-Waldo talks about it um, and uh, says, and I'll just say what he says, in an interview that uh, while many saw the scene as brutal rape, he says, quoting here, that was obviously never intended. I understand that one can see it as that, but for us it was much more complex. Alex Graves goes through that too of, well, yeah, it started that way, but it goes back here. But it didn't, there's some great comments about just Alex Graves' lack of realization that he was filming a rape scene. That is from Laura Hudson of Wired magazine, uh, that that is, that is the problem. And that is disturbing. And it feel, uh, it, it does uh, fuel the rape culture, rape culture conversation about how that, that, you know, it's this persistence of, uh, and I'm just kind of reading her words here, but I agree with them wholeheartedly of the, this could easily, that, that a rape could turn into something consensual is, is a dangerous, um, dysfunctional at best, but a dangerous way of looking at sex and consent. Uh, one uh, that is based on the idea of forcing women to give it is uh, the words of uh, Laura Hudson from Wired Magazine. I I stand by that, and I agree with it. Watching this scene now, and I think I was one of the ones, again, male, straight male perspective, looking at it, I was like, yeah, it was very, it was always an uncomfortable scene, but, you know, but but she, uh, uh, Cersei kind of says yes, you know, and I think now looking back on it, I can't watch this episode and not think that they completely bungled it, that it was not just that, the scene itself was necessary, I think, the story, but the different way to approach it, different way to do it. It's interesting. I don't have I don't have full interviews in front of me, but Lena Headey does talk about it 
And in this particular uh, clip here, looking again at, at Wikipedia um, and looking at this uh, section here, she's declined to comment about whether she interpreted the sex as consensual. I think that's interesting. Um, that all the other, the guys are like, oh, I know it looks like rape, but it wasn't. And then she does not, does not come out and say that. Uh, she says that it's a very complicated moment, moment for many reasons. There was this need and it wasn't right, yet it felt great and it wasn't right. And it played out the way it did. And I was really happy with the scene, says Lena Headey in this one particular interview. But I think that's interesting that, um, and this is from Bustle Magazine in May of 2014. I, I think it's poignant. I think it's uh, interesting that she does not uh, take that same line of, uh, oh, you know, it started as rape, but it wasn't. No, no, she understands, as she as she would. Um, so, again, one man in a room, not a roundtable discussion here. I look back on this scene. It is uncomfortable. Um, do, would I still want the scene in some way? Yeah, I, I actually think I would. It, it is It is relatively key to the story, but do you need to have that? Could you do it different? Could it be uh, 100% consensual uh, from the start, maybe driven by Cersei? Uh, different ways to approach it. I don't have that particular answer. I'm not here to give that particular answer. I'm just saying when you look back, this episode is known for this scene, and it's not the greatest thing to be known for. Um, my hope would be that the show and the creators would grow, change, and adapt. I think they do so in some ways, but they run into this again in the next season. Season five, um, they run into uh, they run into this problem a lot, and I think as a, as a creator, uh, I, I run into it as a, as a comic too. I run into uh, to a lot of folks who just you can t apply a lot of common sense to scenes like this, and those in the end of the day just become justifications for pu putting perhaps an unnecessary rape component into your story. And uh, again, always open to comments, always open to more. Uh, uh, I just, uh, it, it's, it's what this episode's known for. And that, that is, uh, you can't run away from that, I don't think. I don't think. All right. I don't want to move past that like it's something that we can just get over. Uh, it is big, but uh, I want to continue the discussion here on other parts of this episode. I love looking at the impact of the story, uh, the impact of the episode on the story, and perhaps impact on us. Um, there's some wonderful things here uh, about, ba if you're a Baelish fan, Baelish has been, um, you know, he's been lurking. He's been in the shadows. And now, especially when you know his part in all of it, this is when Baelish kind of steps forward. Not out of the shadows. He's always in the shadows and literally in cloud cover in this episode. But I, um, I love this episode for that. If you're a Baelish fan, and I know a lot of Baelish fans. Diehard Baelish fans, and I am too. And mostly because Aiden Gillen plays him so well. But uh, he, Sansa runs to his safety, to his protection. We'll talk about that theme again and again and again. And I've always, I remember one of the discussions I had around this episode at the time was Aiden Gillen is really leaning in. Like there was, his voice was almost different. And years later, watching it back, I still kind of have that feeling. I don't, I don't necessarily think that's fact, but I still kind of have that feeling that Aiden Gillen's just... This is the most Baelish his voice has been. Like, he goes from, you know, he's always had a, you know, a bit of a voice and accent, whatever. Aiden Gillen brought to the role, whatever choice he made as a performer to create the character. Uh, but this one, it's like, there's, there's, a, there's a gravel to his voice. There's a, there's a 
twisty mustache villain uh, kind of thought there. And, and I remember it stood out to me at the time almost like negatively. Like, I don't, what, what, what's he doing? Now I look back, I kind of think it has to do with Baelish fully kind of the mask coming down a little bit in this moment with Santa. He is the villain. He is a villain, I, I think, uh, with apologies to his fans. And, I, and again, still am one. But I love that about that. I think that impacts his story. Going forward, even though he... He, uh, he, 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 he doesn't have, uh, he's not in every episode and, and a lot of stuff, um, in season four, uh, is off, right? It's, it's, uh, especially in season three too, it's, it's going to woo lies and all, the, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, he is a, he, you know, as an audience and the story now knows that he is a major player. He's not just whispering in the shadows. He's pulling strings like you couldn't even imagine or maybe you wanted to imagine because you're a Baelish fan. Uh, and in this moment, I, uh, he's, he is, um, he's feeding a lot of lies. He's doing his Phantom Menace type of uh, strategy here to Sansa. And there is, we'll talk about one of my favorite little moments. I love looking at the little scenes and moments. But overall with Sansa, she's just seen Joffrey die. Um, perhaps her new husband that she doesn't even want might be the one who did it. She definitely did it, did not do it. She doesn't know that. She has this wonderful necklace on that she thought was hand, handed down. She doesn't know her part at all. It's all happening fast. Um, Dantos or Dantos is, is, is whisking her away. Uh, and, and she's probably so completely overwhelmed. But here's this real big lesson. It's in her continued education on uh, who is really in control and what is going on here. And they repeat that uh, uh, lesson that Baelish had taught her before. Uh, we're all liars here and everyone better than you. And, and Sansa's starting to see that big picture. And I think that does have a, an effect on her going forward. Again, I, I, I described it as this continued education of Sansa, the girl that shows up in King's Landing dreaming of, uh, you know, being a queen and, and flowers and, and bluebirds flying around and this fairy tale version. And that has been just, that that I that naive view has been chipped away at, has been just toppled over. I mean, horrible things already have happened to this this woman. Uh, and now as she's being whisked away from it, it is part of this continued education. They're all liars and who is really in control. And uh, Sansa eventually in her life, through much more pain and suffering and horrible things that happened to her, finally gets that control. I think this is, you look at Sansa's journey, this is the important education moment for, again, not to devalue any moments and any experiences that she's like, oh, well, this all matters because I'm learning. But the, the fact that Baelish in this moment chooses to be like, hey, what have I told you? What have I told you before? We're all liars here. That's right. Never accept anything at face value. And, you know, she smashes the, uh, the necklace that he created. Uh, other little impacts on the stories. I, I love here then the, the Arya and Hound scene with the father and the daughter on the farm that uh, they label it as the Red Wedding. Uh, the Red Wedding, they're calling it, and how that, I uh, love that in story that's known, right? Not just something that we know. Uh, Ed and uh, Gren return um, from the mutineers, Craster's Keep. Um, John needs to go north, and I think uh, this uh, impacts the story greatly, special, especially season four. This is a big divergence from the story in the book so far, and one that at the time, I can't wait to discuss a little bit more, one at the time that I did not like, as much as I say I'm positive about the shows, but I remember back in 2014, I didn't like that John went back up. Now I get it. I have less problems with it now, and I actually think it's a, lot, a lot of it's fun, and the near, the near miss with Brandon John is uh, interesting to me. But that's important to the show, to the story. 
And, uh, and then the big one there uh, is, I think, Danny uh, arriving in Marine, setting her sights on Frayne Marine. And this will be the place that she is uh, bogged down in. Kind of uh, uh, her journey stops there for a while. But it's a big, important lesson. Big things happen to Danny and Marine. And it's funny, going back to 2014, watching this as it happens, as someone who was now... The bo- I was reading the books, but the show was leading the way for me. Um, and I still, I, and I think that factors into uh, the argument of uh, this moment, the Marine Breaker of Chains moment, ha- lacks some oomph, as Matt Fowler said in his IGN review. I, I was expecting, I wanted Danny on the throne by the end of season five, you know, without, again, not knowing any of the plot going forward in, in uh, book five or anything. Eventually, I would read that uh, pretty uh, shortly after, this, after the season, actually. I was, uh, I think that, that's why I have some Danny and Marine problems, uh, not in terms of uh, the show's execution of it, but just like as a, as a fan of the character, just wanted her to do like she didn't have to bore Nunkai. Free everyone in Marine, get your ships. Finally get some ships and head to Westeros. Let's get it on. Uh, but she's, of course, going to be in Marine for a while. And it's weird to think that here she is at the gates of Marine, and that's where Danny's going to be for a bit, uh, which, uh, you know, was uh, hard to accept at the time for a Danny fan like me. We love looking at things that also have some foreshadowing, maybe things with more meaning. These can be small things. These can be, uh, be big things. Uh, love, uh, I was, uh, loved uh, hearing Arya describe uh, you know, Bravos and her, quote, friends in Bravos, uh, which uh, right now is just uh, Jag and Hagar, but we know she's on her way there at the end of the season. Love hearing that. And love uh, one of those things where, like, with uh, hindsight, uh, the benefit of hindsight, the show in the rearview mirror, just like, oh, Bravos. Or you're going to be there for a while. Uh, and uh, that's just, uh, you know, the concept of, yeah, I got some friends over there. Totally different. Uh, wait till you meet the wave. I uh, love that uh, during this scene, this uh, great soup scene, the father talks about uh, the red wedding. And uh, uh, Walder Frey uh, says uh, he'll burn in the seven hells for what he, he's uh, done. And he's saying it to the... Uh, to the person, Arya, that's going to send him to the Seven Hells. Love that. I love there's the mention of the Golden Company, which is a great rep for book fans. Already by this point, you're, you're perking up the Golden Company. Uh, Stannis is uh, talking about it with Davos because Davos thinks it would be a good idea to hire the Golden Company. Um, and Stannis, just the Golden Company. And uh, we on the show eventually will spend some time with the Golden Company. A lot of time? No. Short amount of time, which I know bothers a lot of people. Uh, I would have loved to spend more time with the Golden Company to um, Harry Strickland uh, and all on all the gag there, but I love the mention of it here. Uh, then, of course, a big impact on the story as well, but also foreshadowing things with more meaning. The great uh, scenes with Shireen, her teaching Davos more history, which now some of those Shireen Davos moments we can look at, uh, you know, as a uh, prequel to uh, uh, House of the Dragon. Well, it'd be more of a not a prequel, but a prequel to the show we're about to watch in a way a, a, a precursor maybe more than a prequel uh shreen teaching davos uh, history and davos hits on the the iron bank of bravos love that stuff i uh, love that stuff tywin and Oberyn talking about the mountain talking about uh maybe arranging uh, a meeting with them and knowing where that goes it's uh you know Oberyn's confidence here is catchy it's uh it's contagious um, but sadly, we all know where it goes. A lot of foreshadowing and just uh, not even foreshadowing. Just this scene has more meaning to me now watching Oberyn um, at the beginning of his journey and not at the tragic end. One of the big ones. Um, we Well, here's a little one. We get to see Hisdar in, in Marine. And even at the time, uh, unless you were looking at the credits, you, even if you were a book reader, 
you wouldn't know that that was his dar. You're just you're looking at uh, one of the um, um, uh, elite of Marine on the wall there. Uh, this one here, it's big. It's big. If you're especially if you're a Jon Snow fan and an Egret fan, we meet Ollie. We get to meet Ollie and his village, and we uh, we get to meet his dad, but not for long. Uh, the free folk arrive, and Ollie loses his parents, and he sees Egret with the the arrow shot. We get the the pose, her looking away. The bow comes down. We, as we know, a uh, little foreshadowing of her demise. And the same shot, uh, fun to watch now. You just don't know. When you're watching the first time, you don't know that that's going to, that that scene later on, the reversal of that is going to make you cry. You don't know. Plus, we meet Ollie, and we're, we're, we feel for Ollie here. You should feel for Ollie. It's horrible what he goes through. Um, but, uh, you know, a little bit later on, I don't know if we're all rooting for Ollie. But it's interesting to go back to this moment and look at just the viciousness of the free folk in this scene, the trauma inflicted on him, the brutality of it. We're going to talk again about the big theme of protection, what this um, uh, does to the Night's Watch and the discussion they have about this. But to watch it here, I think it's important to somewhat remember Ollie's perspective and experience uh, later on when he doesn't change and adapt and accept uh, the wildlings as free folk and accept them beyond the wall. Um it's, we'll get to the big discussion here. I think it's important to remember this moment. Remember when we all met Ollie and we were afraid for him and uh, rooting for vengeance alongside of him here. Uh, looking at favorite moments and scenes, uh, so much to get to. I could easily list every scene, but I love talking about the big moments, the lines of dialogue, or the little scenes. Going towards the beginning of this episode... Uh, as uh, Cersei is uh, demanding they find Tyrion and demanding they find his wife as Joffrey lays there dead. Tywin even starting to lose a little bit of control. Jamie going through the ringer there as well. As Ser Dantos and uh, Sansa, and I still call him, I will always call him Ser Dantos, as they, they flee King's Landing uh, right before they get on the boat. There's a great moment. And it was in, I remember it was in the trailer for season four. There's a great moment with Sansa, the hood on, kind of flipping back and looking up. And there's a lot of terror. There's a lot of, uh, you know, panic in her face and, and the running and not knowing what's going on. And why is this uh, former knight turned uh, clown saving me? A lot going on. I love the moment. And I would love to, uh, if there's any insight out there in any book, I'd love to dig into it. There is a, just a great moment and a great choice from Sophie Turner. As, 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 that, as she turns around, I really think... She is saying goodbye to King's Landing. Not a sentimental, sweet moment. But again, going to the little girl that showed up with her needlepoint princess-turned-queen dreams, showing up to the big castle, showing up for the fairy tale, and the horror that, um, that she's faced with almost immediately. Uh, I think, in a way, it's Sansa saying goodbye to that part. She's already been forced to move past it she's again gone through so many horrible things already um so this is not a sentimental moment but i do love that amongst the chaos and the panic it is she stops and she looks and it is goodbye to all that and on to the next uh, part of her life and um and and she will she never when, when she returns to king's landing uh it's uh, in a much different capacity 
Love the line from Baelish because he was a, a drunk and a fool, and I don't trust drunk fools. I can't even, his voice is so over the top of the moment. I think that's, uh, I think we can all put that on a t shirt. Uh, love the scene. <laughs> love the scene of Tywin giving Tom and the lesson of what makes a good king. Love that. Um, what follows it is what we already talked about. Uh, less a uh, favorite of a scene for uh, so many different reasons. But I love this scene. And, and this is, I have this discussion. Um, as you all know, or, or most of you should know, you know, big Star Wars fan. We discuss uh, Star Wars in detail. We discuss it in themes over in the Force Center podcast. And Star Wars is about lessons. Um, I, I, I think I, I've been trying to analyze for myself why I love Star Wars and I love Game of Thrones almost just as much, but it has two different effects on me or I go to it for two different reasons. And Tywin's one of the litmus test characters for that. There's some moments that I've cited too. Um, Braun standing for Tyrion in the Vale and killing Servardus and being accused of killing him without honor. And Braun says, yeah, you know, he did. You're right. He did fight with honor. I'm still alive. Paraphrasing, of course. If that was Star Wars, I'd be having a discussion with Joseph uh, and anyone else on Force Center, Jennifer when she's there, uh, and anyone stopping through. We'd be having a discussion of how you fight is important. Star Wars is about that. In a story about wars, it analyzes uh, how to uh, avoid war, uh, the steps to war, and the mistakes made along the way, and also how you fight. How you fight is important. It's a big question always for the Jedi. How you fight. Why you fight and how you fight. Uh, so I always, uh, that's Star Wars. If it was Bra- if Braun was in Star Wars, we'd be saying eh, he won, but uh, not good for his soul. But in watching Game of Thrones, I don't have that reaction to Braun in that moment. I'm like, yeah, that's that's exactly right. That's how you do it. That's how you survive this world. And I take that to Tywin. I love Tywin Lannister. Andres Cabrera and I on this very podcast feed have discussed how much we love Tywin, but he's not a good guy, and he pays for it. He pays for his sins. But um, I absolutely love Tommen and I love him in this scene because everything he's saying to Tommen is correct about what makes a good ruler. And we'll go into again how that ties into the theme of protection, I think. But I love when Tommen is working through it. Joffrey's dead body is in front of Tommen. It's his older brother. Tywin is grandson. He don't care. He's glad. He's glad Joffrey's gone. And he immediately starts to sink those claws in with this valuable lesson that Tywin ain't wrong about. And I love the moment. It's a little moment. Tywin is uh, so reserved, right? He's so uh, stoic and um, enacts his vengeance in his own way. Um, he's uh, earned his uh, the respect and uh, fear he gets from everyone he's earned through horrible actions and smart decisions for this land. Uh I love in this episode, there's two kind of unreserved Tywin moments. Uh, one, when Joffrey is dead and he's screaming to, to, you know, for the guards and screaming for Tyrion and Sansa and that moment. He's still kind of in control, but I love, I love Charles Dance in this moment. Talking to Tommen, giving him his lessons. Oh, is it is it pious? Is it being pious? Is it uh, uh, keeping the faith? Is it uh, is is winning and ruling the same thing? It is not. Your your father wasn't a good king. And then when Tommen finally hits on the ah, it's wisdom, and Tywin has that yes moment. It's one of those moments where Tywin lets his hair down eh, just for a little bit, and I love that moment. I love that read. 
Go, moving into uh, Hound and the uh, uh, scene with uh, Arya. Uh, the great scene there uh, with the father and the daughter, we know that we'll factor in a little bit later into, uh, was that, season seven with Hound. Uh, the praying over the soup is just great fun. Uh, is he going to do all seven of the fuckers? Still one of my favorite lines. Uh, I love the running joke of meaning no offense to the Hound. That's uh, popped up a lot now. I uh, love all that. Um, but that scene uh, leads to, that sequence leads to, of course, uh, the hound uh, bopping the, the father over the head, taking the gold and running. And this goes back to the discussion here, uh, my point of I go to Star Wars to, to learn a little different, uh, to, to learn, I should say. I go to Game of Thrones to see how things really are. I say this, Star Wars and things like Star Wars are these morality tales, as you know, and it's like a map. Star Wars is a map on, on how the best, the best way forward, uh, 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 what could be. If you make the decisions, you learn these lessons, here's what could be with Star Wars. Game of Thrones is a mirror. Song of Ice and Fire is a mirror. George R. R. Martin's taking from history, uh, whereas uh, George and anyone from Star Wars is taking from other fairies, uh, fairy tales or, or mythical journeys, heroes' journeys, and, and teaching us lessons that George based a lot of his in, in history. Looking back on the lessons, it is a mirror. And it's moments like Tywin trying to uh, teach uh, how to rule because he needs that. It's how he can survive in this land. And the Hound giving Arya this moment of uh, uh, this great uh, great exchange where she's where Arya's rightfully upset of what he's done. The, the, the father and, and, the, and the daughter here have, have extended uh, guest rights. Uh, they talk about that around the dinner table. They talk about, uh, it, you know, it's, a, it's an honorable moment and he's looking for help. He's looking for protection. Again, the theme. And when he, Hound bops him over the head, takes the money and heads off um, saying he's going to die. That's the truth. Winter's going to come. This guy can't, te- can't take care of himself. He can't protect his daughter. He's going to die. The gold does him no good. It will do, do us better. And he says, I just understand the way things are. How many Starks they got to behead before you figure it out? I've always loved that line. And I've always loved it because that's what Game of Thrones does. Here's the mirror. Are you going to get this? This is how you survive, Arya. And that's the truth. It's the truth. But what I love looking back on the scene and knowing where they go, where their story goes... It's interesting that the Hound does know the lay of the land. He does know the way things are. And he's accepted it. He's survived. He's even at times thrived. Most of the time we spend with him thrives, but he thrives, survives, but a lot of times he thrives. But how at the end of the story, the end of their journey together, I think for the first, the Hound comes to realize what could be if you make a better decision. Look what's happened to me. Uh, This world is a certain way. And maybe it shouldn't be. And I think along the way, when we meet up with him again in season six, but definitely in this time with the, with the Brotherhood in, in, in season seven, I, I think the Hound um, really starts to change his view on it. On, on, he does know how the world is. Maybe he should have done a, a little bit more to change that. And he feels you know, he has his mission with his brother uh, to get that kind of vengeance, that kind of justice, and close his life, close his tale, and how he doesn't want Arya to be that way. It is almost like the hound at the end is turning to her to say, not just don't be like me, but I was right about what the world is. Perhaps you can do something about it or at least choose a different path so you can get beyond that. It shouldn't have to be this way. I think I see that more now with this scene in that line. 
And there's a difference again between Star Wars and Game of Thrones. And I think then the Game of Thrones is providing more lessons. And definitely the source material providing more lessons. But looking back and seeing what it does to us, this pursuit of our goals, this pursuit of the throne, our ambitions, um, war itself, the trauma of, of violence, the trauma of, of all these crimes against humanity, like what it does to us uh, and how can we avoid that. I think Game of Thrones might be commenting on that a little bit more than I think I gave it credit for in this moment where I just remember going, yeah, I said it before, yeah, the Hound is right, Tywin's right. And I think it's unfortunate that they're right. What can we do to change that is what the show uh, could be saying at some points. But also it's a case study. I don't want to give a, I don't want to go too far down the path that Game of Thrones is a, Morality uh, tale. Uh, it's a different kind of morality tale. You know what I mean. Uh, love the scenes. It's a two-part scene. When I say love, I mean they hurt. Love Gilly and Sam at the wall. We talk talk about what the world really is. Sam sees it. He knows it. Hundred men at this wall. One woman. You know it's all in their mind. Um, and he's worried about her. And I love the scene. I love when she's just like, "What are they all thinking about me?" Are you thinking about me? Blush. Sam blushes. Um, but he's worried about her. And I love the, I love their relationship. I love how it plays out. I love how they find each other. I love how they grow together. And I love the moment with Gilly saying, uh, thank you. Yeah, Sam says, for what? For worrying about me. Such a sweet moment. That is then immediately followed by Sam taking her up to, uh, taking her down to the brothel Molestown. Uh, which again will tie into the theme of protection, and it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because of the scene they had, but uh, uh, we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, I'm a Stannis fan. I am a Stannis fan, and uh, we'll uh, on a future episode of uh, uh, near future episode of uh, Casually Tuck, we'll play the great call from our friend Eric Monroe. But he was uh, just celebrating the 10 year anniversary of Stannis being on our TV screens. We just passed that. I uh, love that. Uh, I love the moment. Love this quote. Stannis saying, uh, "I will not become a page in somebody else's history book." Uh, we could analyze it if we want, but I just also think it's a great moment. As a Stannis fan, you know, that was uh, my fear. And uh, it ended up kind of becoming true, maybe. Uh, I love uh, the brothel scene with Oberyn. Again, kind of return of uh, sex position. Uh, it has a little bit more to do with what's going on and, and Oberyn's conversation. Uh, his uh, fuck your fill speech. Uh, you know, sorry, by the way, so I censor myself on Force Center and other places. Not here, Casually Talk. It's Game of Thrones. We'll, we'll, we'll keep this swearing to a minimum if you get the youngsters watching i can't imagine a lot of you have youngsters watching game of thrones with you but uh, anyways that's a, another discussion for another time love the scene with obren and laria san uh you know you know it is it's a it's a it's a sexy scene it's a brothel scene uh but i love everything about it. i love obren when it comes to love i don't choose sides i just love what about his character what it says about his character uh who he is and how different he is in this land and then obren tywin walks in Tywin in a brothel is an interesting discussion because he holds his nose up to it, but we know uh, Shay lurking in the shadows in his life there, so we know where some of that goes. Um, but again, Tywin's so controlled. Uh, and I love the line, Oberyn to Tywin as he walks into the brothel. Would you like to sit? No, no, I wouldn't. Uh, great stuff with Tyrion and Podrick. Um, and I love the line, uh, whenever something bad happens to me, I assume my sister has something to do with it. And then I want to shout out the great Dario is the champion moment. Love the champion of Marine. Obviously plays out a little bit different here in the show. Uh, but I love it. Uh, absolutely love it. So much uh, about Dario and uh, seeing the world for what it is and how you can survive through that. Uh, but it's also, lessons aside, just a good one there. In the time we have remaining here, I do want to talk about the themes. I've been mentioning it. Uh, we, we've got a lot going on in this episode, as you do in all of them. And again, when I say themes, 
Uh, I always laugh that it's it's Benioff and Weiss, but I think mostly Benioff that Benioff that will say, "Ah, we don't do themes in Game of Thrones." And I've said this before, and I apologize for those who have heard it before. But I just I would argue with him that he's wrong about his own work. <laughs> that themes emerge, and each episode has um, beyond just themes that are like as, as Benioff says from high school, you know, essays and English projects. Each episode is communicating some big ideas, and they are specific ideas at times. So if you don't want to call those themes, that's fine. But I think the episodes uh, are communicating things and providing lessons and providing um, not just clues in terms of predictions for what's happening to the characters, but why the characters go on the journey. Uh, this one, there is a lot on who is control. Uh, we talked about Tywin sinking his claws into Tommen earlier. Uh, Baelish and Elena trying to control things through their plan. Davos knowing that money is in, in, in control and the Iron Bank has it all. And that they don't necessarily uh, care who's on the Iron Throne. They just care who can pay them. Um, that's, uh, to me, a lot about who's in control. But as you're looking at this episode a little bit more, it, what really starts to emerge is protection. And what we do to protect those we love is a big one. And, and how we do it and, and the mistakes along the way. Uh, Olena kills. Um, she has entered uh, House Tyrell into this big plan. With Baelish, someone they might not normally trust. Um, and she does it. Is it a power move? Yeah. Do the Tyrells know their place in the land, their place with the Lannisters and their importance for keeping uh, King's Landing uh, and the folks there fed and, and um, uh, supported financially, just supported in general? Yeah, absolutely. It's a power play. But it's done. Elena's entered House Tyrell into this... Um, into this plan and into this uh, power play for protection. This scene, it's interesting that it's, it's, it's Marjorie who's such a strong character from start to finish, I think, even when she goes through uh, some of the problems that she will face in, in, in season five and season six. She's a strong character and a smart character, an insightful character, a character who knows the lay of the land. But in this moment, it's some of the weak, weakest moments for Marjorie in, in a good way, I mean, for her character. She wonders if she is cursed. Uh, Renly, uh, dead. Renly didn't even, you know, want to be be with her, she she references. Uh, Joffrey, horrible, but dead. And she's a little crestfallen. Now, crestfallen because we know she wants to be the queen, uh, but also that, hey, it's a little bit of vulnerability there for Marjorie. And I kind of like that. And that prompts Elena to just kind of say in a roundabout sort of way, oh, don't, you're much better off than you were. And it's it's Elena kind of saying, I'm here to protect you. And that's what this is about. Um, so love that. How do you protect uh, those you love? You kill those who would harm them or kill those who would potentially harm them or be in their way. Um, Cersei, her son has died. This episode starts with the aftermath of a lack of protection. Uh, literally, figuratively, but literally uh, with uh, in, 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 in uh, episode uh, two, we go through the plan that, uh, you know, Jamie's talking with Marin Tran about how we will protect the king. It's big. And, and that's what Jamie's there for. And, and he's questioning his identity and who he is with his identity and his sword hand gone and, and who he is now. And through all that, Joffrey's not protected. They failed to protect him. This episode starts with a big lack of protection. And uh, Cersei, uh, it, how can she stop that going forward? It's big for her. And I, I think in a way, uh, this is just my thoughts on There's a lot going on. And Lena Headey is so great and, and just plays every moment. I love that, that in the in the Tywin and Tommen scene, 
about wisdom and how to rule just just the the, the the anger she has in that moment for her father and the pain she this moment she's looking off and the way she just kind of looks at Joffrey everything going about her and I think to almost retroactively protect her her son but also maybe protect herself she's going to believe what she needs to believe and her idea of protection is to go out and strike it is to go out and uh, get revenge and get justice and take down those that she's convinced has done it and I think by because of that she does not see who really uh, does it who really is behind it um that's part of her ongoing journey but that's how she um sees protection the hound uh, teaching Arya to protect yourself in a way it's the lay of the land again important I talked about it the the hound sees the world as it is and tries to impart that on Arya. and i think she learns that clearly but then we know the hound uh, though being um not being wrong we know how, uh, uh, you know, he's right about this is how the world is, but he, I think he grows to know that it shouldn't be like that is, is my overall point there, going back to that. With Sam and Gilly, you see how uh, Sam in a way feels that in order to protect her, it, it, maybe he needs to sacrifice his love and desire for her and, and kind of, again, accept the way that it is. And instead of trying to change it, he's fearful Um Again, part of this episode is talking about not just how you can protect someone, but how maybe you can do it wrong or how the mistakes you can make and, and leading by fear. It's almost that negative type of attachment that gets talked about in Star Wars a lot of, of you so don't want harm to come to this person, which is understandable because of the way you feel about them, because of what they mean to you. Uh, but you don't trust that they can survive on their own or that they're okay. You don't put any faith in them, no trust in them. And so you make decisions out of fear. He asks uh, this question to Gilly, or it's more of a point, but it's a question in having this discussion of who's going to protect you at Castle Black. And she says, you, you've protected me. You've protected me uh, north of the wall. Um, and you protected me. You can protect me here. She has the faith in him. She um, can see, see, sees how it could be. Sam can't see that. It's understandable. It's kind of the design of Sam's character, right? It's not that he isn't strong. He just doesn't see how strong he is. So he makes this decision out of fear, and Gilly calls him on it. Says, this isn't best for me or the baby. This is best for Sam. It's best for you. Not for me. Not for, not for the baby. So he, uh, that is uh, his uh, lesson on protection. Um, I uh, like, uh, too, Tywin. Go, when he, he goes to Oberyn, that great scene in the brothel is also about protection. Tywin is hatching this plan. How honest is the plan? I don't know, but Tywin hatches this plan to bring uh, uh, Dorn into the fold to protect the kingdom. But don't forget that for, for Tywin, the kingdom kind of just means his family. It's one of the times where, where Tywin acknowledges uh, Danny and what's going on and the history of the Seven Kingdoms and Targaryens and their dragons and who stood up to them and who fought them back. It's, of course, Dorne. So this is a, a plan that Tywin is hatching here. It's his little uh, string, pull into the strings. Oberyn's smart enough to maybe see that, and Tywin knows he's smart enough to see that. So how much of, is a sincere um, um, uh, protection plan from Tywin, and how much is just game playing? I don't know. I don't think it matters. I think it's him trying to protect his family. This is how Tywin sees it. And then you got uh, Podrick protecting Tyrion, taking care of Tyrion. And Ty uh, Tyrion having to send uh, Podrick off to protect him. I will not have you die on my behalf. Just a great um, 
kind of a mutual protection society going on there. And it's hard and it's sad. I love all that stuff with Podrick and Tyron, uh, Ty, uh, Tywin, excuse me, Tyrion, not Tywin. Uh, too many TYs in this world. But I love Tyrion's line of Podrick, you know, this is goodbye. Uh, but they will meet again, as we know. We talked about Ollie. Ollie and his family in his village have no protection. They are vulnerable. You are seeing it. So it leads to this bigger conversation about protection. You go to the, Ollie runs to the night, to the Night's Watch. He runs to the wall. He runs to Castle Black. And then we pick up right away. The Night's Watch is discussing uh, this incident. And so many people, uh, they want to rush out. They want to go get these free folk, uh, these wildlings, as they would say down below. They want to enact vengeance. And that's not protection. And I think it's interesting that uh, it's, it's Maester Eamon, but also Alistair Thorne, who has his moments. I know he's not everyone's favorite. I enjoy him. I think he's uh, uh, there for some important moments of uh, leadership. And um, he, keeps the, he keeps the big picture in mind here. I want to give him credit there. But Maester Eamon kind of leads the, the thought here. There's only 100 of us here. What? That's not protection. He's not saying this. I'm at sin, But going off and chasing those wildlings that just uh, killed Ollie in his village and are going around doing it to others who are in this part of the land here up at the, re, uh, the gift, I should say, um, and the Night's Watch is supposed to protect them. We in this current state can't offer that kind of protection. That is now vengeance if we go down there. We'll, we'll, we'll not be keeping our mandate. We'll make the wall vulnerable. We'll make ourselves vulnerable. Even Alistair Thorne says that's what they want. They want us to go out. They can kill us out there. They can pick the crows off in the open field. They can't do it at the wall. And Mason Eamon reminds everybody, we are the watchers on the wall. Defending the wall is protection for this land. Now, at this point, for the, at this point in the story, um, they think the protection from the wildlings is uh, perhaps their biggest mandate. Uh, but we know other things are stirring, and most of them, I think, uh, understand other things are stirring. Uh, so it's interesting, in this big episode about protection, the wall is offering this giant form of protection, and the Night's Watch has this discussion on how best to protect and how they can protect right now. Uh, I love that there. Uh, Danny needs a champion to protect her, uh, and she gets it there. Um, but also, this is for the big picture. Uh, Danny trying to take Marine, give them freedom. Um, it's not direct protection. But it, uh, it, it finishes off um, this episode that starts with a complete lack of protection. It is Danny at the walls, at the gates of Marine, saying, the best protection that you all can have, uh, this path towards freedom, might come from yourself. But I also uh, offer you that freedom. I'm here on your side. And, and maybe I can protect you. Uh, which is how Danny is hitting this town. Town, city, whatever you want to call it. Definitely not a village. She's hitting Marine with this kind of uh, good intentions and how the world in this particular city and even uh, eventually the freed people, how they receive her and her intentions uh, as uh, it's very important for the path ahead for Danny, I think there. Uh, so there we go. We got some lessons on rulers in here, uh, the wisdom, all that stuff with Tywin. So that is uh, my look back at Breaker of Chains. Episode three of season four. We're going to keep the rewatch going. Might do the rewatch every other week uh, on here on Cashly Talks podcast feed and the YouTube channel. Also might, uh, you know, if I get fancy and I do it every week, uh, bear with me if I don't. Um, It'll be great if I do. Uh, But also we'll be looking at news, getting ready for House of Dragon, getting ready for Rings of Power. So much stuff coming. 
Thank you all who have been listening to Casually Talk for the whole uh, journey. And if you're just joining or returning, glad to have you here. Glad to have you back. You can follow me on Twitter at CatNapsuck. Go to my website, CatNapsuck.com, for information on all the other things I do, the other shows, comedy shows coming up. Got a big one in L.A. on June 4th at Doug Weston's Troubadour. Uh, Big show, Ryan Sickler headlining. You can get uh, tickets and information on my website. Uh, You can follow uh, Morning Drive Media at MDriveMedia on Twitter. Uh, And then on Facebook, we do have a Casterly Talk page there if you'd like to follow us there. All right, that's it. We're out. So go find yourself some protection, everybody. See you next time here on Casterly Talk. Mm